Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, it's Manveen here. Today's episode is the second in a two-part investigation presented by my colleague Oliver Moody, the Times Berlin correspondent. In this episode, Oliver looks at the power Hans Globke held during the rebuilding of modern Germany and the extent to which he was protected. Here's part two of The Spider in the Web, the Hans Globke story. I'm standing outside the Federal Chancellery of Germany, next to the banks of the River Spree in the heart of Berlin. It's a funny old building. A sprawling postmodern palace, the largest government nerve center in the world, festooned with living greenery. Berliners have nicknamed it the Elephant's Washing Machine. The huge panes of glass in its frontage seem to promise transparency, but the blank concrete walls around them hint at locked doors and secrets, an opacity behind the openness. And behind those walls, at the heart of the German government, hangs a portrait of Hans Globke, the lawyer who was involved in some of the Third Reich's most infamous anti-Semitic legislation. The question for me is, what's it doing there? I'm Oliver Moody, and I'm the Berlin correspondent for The Times. You're listening to The Spider in the Web, the Hans Globke story, a two-part podcast for stories of our times. Part two, from Nazi bureaucrat to the architect of modern Germany. If you've not listened to part one yet, I'd advise you to go back and listen to that first. This is a story about the Nazi regime that you've never heard before. In part one, we heard how Hans-Josef Maria Globke, a small, punctilious man in brimless glasses, rose through the ranks of the Nazi regime to become one of the country's top legal draftsmen and was, in some part, responsible for the laws that underpinned the Holocaust. Despite not officially joining the Nazi party, he was captured at the end of the Second World War by the Allies, before ultimately being set free. In this episode, we'll hear how Klopke came to play a leading role in shaping post-war Germany, despite the darkness of his past. 
At the end of part one, we left Globka a free man in the British zone of occupied Germany. He'd been officially denazified thanks to endorsements from some of the country's most prominent anti-Nazis. Which is astonishing, given his activities. But even a guy like Lockett was declared, how do you call it, not, not guilty. That's Manfred Lahnstein, a former Social Democratic minister, opposed in his politics to those of the Nazi regime for as long as he's been politically conscious. We heard from him in part one, telling us his memories of pea soup days and biscuit soup days after the war. I was idealistic, as you should be when, when, you, are, when you are 23, 24 years <laughs> old. I grew up politically with the conviction that all former members of the Nazi party and its organization should, should be thrown out of public positions. It was only later on that it dawned upon me that it was, had been impossible. For Lahnstein, beside Globke's background under Nazism, another thing stood out for him, or rather didn't. The way this man looked, just a typical, unremarkable bureaucrat. These people all look strikingly similar. They all wear the same kind of hat. They all have the same kind of coat. They always wear the same kind of dress. Uh, and that, that makes all of them much more anonymous than the more colorful figures which we have today. So how did Globke creep back into the new West German government? Well, only months after the war came the first serious reckoning, the Nuremberg Trials. Judges from Britain, America, Russia and France assemble in Nuremberg's courthouse. Empowered to impose sentence of death or such punishment as it may consider just, the tribunal sits in judgment upon 20 leaders of the Nazi party. The Allies prosecuted some of the most notorious members of the Nazi regime, including Hermann Göring, Rudolf Hess and Albert Speer. So begins the case of humanity against the makers of war. Globke was also there, but as a witness, because he'd been denazified. Fast forward four years, and in 1949, Globke is introduced to Konrad Adenauer, an imposing figure who dominated the post-war political landscape. Adenauer soon won West Germany's first democratic election and became the new chancellor. He brought in Globke as one of his closest aides. So what did Adenauer see in him? It is quite clear that what drew Adenauer's attention was first Globke's deep knowledge of the structures of administration, which Adenauer wanted to re-resurrect. Gunnar Tarka is a historian at the Institute for Contemporary History in Munich. We heard from him in part one. And second, Globke's abilities as a personal politician and his vast network of contacts to former civil servants. But was there something else Adenauer saw in Globke? Something maybe even a bit nepotistic? They shared a lot of similarities. They had a Catholic background, were both um, brought up in the Rhineland, in higher bourgeois middle class. They both studied law in the city of Bonn, which later became the West German capital. They had both been members of the Catholic Center Party and later its successor, the Christian Democratic Party. And they also had a lot of friends in common. 
Hans Globke left very few traces of his voice for posterity. But here, in a rare recording from the 1950s, we hear him being interviewed by a German television journalist. He's a middle-aged man now, a little jowly, hairline in full retreat, wearing an immaculate three-piece suit with a thick stack of papers on the desk in front of him. In this passage, he's talking about how he and Adenauer would discuss high politics on their daily walks in the gardens of the Chancellery. At this point, the interviewer asks, How does one become state secretary in the Chancellery? As Globke hears the question, a wry smile plays on his lips. And when he answers, he stumbles a little over his words, visibly straining to find the right phrases. And he simply says, That's not so easy to say, Herr Dietrich. Were people with backgrounds like Globke's the norm in Adenauer's chancellery? I would rather turn towards like the opposite of how many opponents to the Nazi regime were there in the chancellery. So we know that Adenauer himself, but how many people like Adenauer were there in the chancellery? And I'd say at most it's three. Like three of the whole civil servants who were resistant to the Nazi ideology. And that is maybe a more shocking figure than counting how many people like Globke were there. Three. That's three out of how many civil servants in the Chancellery? It's fair to say three out of 50. This is something to bear in mind. While Germany was being rebuilt, most of the civil servants in the new state had previously served under Hitler's regime, and many had been members of the Nazi party. By 1956, barely a decade after the Second World War, West Germany had been readmitted to the international community, joined NATO, and re-established its armed forces. It was going through an industrial boom that turned it into the largest economy in Europe. Here's Adenauer addressing the nation a year earlier in 1955. Freiheit verpflichtet. Es gibt für uns im Innern nur einen Weg, den Weg des Rechtsstaates. Freedom, he says, comes with duties. There is only one path for us, the path of the rule of law, democracy and social justice. There is only one place for us in the world, on the side of the free nations. And at Adenauer's right hand, half a step back, stands Hans Globke, looking on impassively, motionless. He controlled access to Adenauer to a large degree. He could decide who could talk to him and whose letters reached Adenauer. Globke became the head of the chancellery and enjoyed an administrative empire beyond Dominic Cummings' wildest dreams. Every single piece of legislation landed on his desk and every single senior bureaucratic post was in his gift. He was the preeminent personnel politician of Western Germany, so he could influence whose careers should go forward and whose shouldn't. 
He ran the spy agencies, the spin doctors, the diplomatic corps, the security apparatus, and the military. Globko was also the political fulcrum of the newborn German intelligence service. And that service, the BND, Bundesnachrichtendienst, acted a bit similar to the FBI in the USA in a way that it collected dirt on political opponents and rivals within the party that could be used by Globke and Adenauer against them. The West German newspapers called him the Sphinx, the spider in the web of Bonn, at that time the country's capital. Some considered him the true chancellor, the most powerful man in the country. Here's a profile of him from 1962 in Bild, Germany's best-selling newspaper. Everything that means power is concentrated in his hands. Positions, money and knowledge. Shadow Chancellor Globke is the best informed man in the Federal Republic, not just in terms of state secrets, but in terms of the private weaknesses of his opponents too. But one thing we haven't talked about yet is the Cold War. From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Intelligence services are accustomed to operating in this nebulous moral twilight where the need for information is the principal objective, it's the principal motive, and it doesn't know morality. That's Tim Naftali. I'm a clinical associate professor of history and public service at New York University. Nearly two decades ago, he looked into the CIA files on Hans Globke. When the Americans wanted to get a sense of what Conrad Adenauer was thinking on issues of state, if they weren't asking Conrad Adenauer directly, they would ask Hans Globke. In this period, the United States was devoutly opposed to the Soviet President Union. Truman gives the nation the basis West Germany was supported by the US, and East Germany was controlled by communist Russia. These are its three interrelated parts. First, direct military assistance, which is the biggest part right now. Second, the contributions we make to support the defense efforts of other nations. And, and so uh, U.S. intelligence found you know, th themselves encountering former members of the Nazi intelligence community who were interested in selling what they knew on the new target. In the case of the Soviets, they were hearing information about the West. In the case of the West, they were hearing information about the, the Soviets. The full reality of what Globke did with his power is only now being pieced together by historians. Globke was up to his neck in a conspiracy with a former Nazi, Major General Reinhard Galen, who had run German military intelligence on the Eastern Front during the Second World War. After the war, the Americans secretly funded Galen, now based in a village near Munich to build a huge clandestine intelligence agency against the new enemy, communism. What they didn't realize was Galen was hiring hundreds of freshly demobilized ex-Nazis, hardened veterans of the SS, the Wehrmacht, and the Gestapo. These people were out of a job. It's the Germans with American money, but without really actually full transparency with the Americans, who set about hiring some of the old boys and basically recreating an old boys network under Galen. 
So, how was Globke involved? A few years ago, Germany's foreign intelligence service, the BND, became the first spy agency in the world to give independent historians access to its archives. One of them was Klaus Dietmar Henke. I gave him a call at his home in Berlin. We've translated his answers. The archive is in Berlin now, but it's not actually an archive. Really, it's an old repository full of old files, and the indexing is nothing like the catalogues in a normal archive. You know, it's a secret service file repository, and of course, that makes historical research very hard compared to other archives. We have to pass the same security checks the BND staff have to go through. That's the most rigorous security checks. What Henker found in those files was dynamite. Galen had illegally placed spies in almost every nook and cranny of his own country. One document lists some of his assets the head of the former German royal family, two princesses of Bavaria, the panzer general who invented Blitzkrieg. This secret service, known as the Org, spied on ministers and leaders of the opposition, newspapers and broadcasters, other spy agencies, the Performing Artists' Union, and even the Association for Victims of the Nazi Regime. Anyone, in short, who could possibly be considered a potential rival to Adenauer and plenty who couldn't. Yes, there were dozens of them. They had a whole load of staff who had been in the SS intelligence agency and the Gestapo and the secret military police. That's being detailed very precisely now for the first time ever. In the autumn, my colleague Gerhard Zelter, who's already written about the Red Orchestra, an anti-Nazi resistance organization, will publish a book setting out very precisely how many Nazis, how many Gestapo people were involved. There was also a significant number of war criminals who had committed war crimes and crimes against humanity. But I should also say, of course, that there were former members of the Nazi security apparatus in other German institutions, in the police, in the National Crime Agency, and so on. And in 1950, Galen placed this entire illegal espionage apparatus, riddled with these ex-Nazis, at the disposal of Hans what happened is unimaginable by our standards today. But how should I put this? These tendencies we see here didn't win. In the end, we got a functional democracy. That wasn't at all a given in the 1950s, and it wasn't a given in the 1960s. But it shows the strength of the institutions. And of course, it also shows how important it was that West Germany was brought into the Western alliance and was monitored for 10 years by the occupying powers. The Britons and the Americans helped us Germans to become reasonable and to become a democracy. Henker says Globke used this intelligence to get journalists fired to plant articles in the German press, and above all, to gain the upper hand over his political rivals. 
1956, with Globke's help, the org was formally absorbed into the German security services. It still exists as the BND, Germany's foreign intelligence agency. So, where are we? Globke is now in charge of an illegal intelligence network full of ex-Nazis and is effectively running the show in Adenauer's West German government. But his past was about to catch up with him. In 1960, Adolf Eichmann was plucked from his hiding place in Argentina by Mossad, the Israeli intelligence service, and taken to Jerusalem to face prosecution for war crimes and crimes against humanity. First count, nature of offense, crime against the Jewish people, an offense under section 1A1. Eichmann was the Nazi bureaucrat who managed the deportation of Europe's Jews to the concentration camps. His name is virtually synonymous today with the Holocaust and the so-called desk criminals of the Third Reich. It was dubbed the trial of the century. The eyes of the world were upon him. It sent a ripple of terror through the West German government. Israel's capture of the architect of the Holocaust, who may or may not have information that would damage the credibility of West Germany, was a matter of high politics. And though Eichmann himself as a human being proved to be rather undistinguished individual. I mean, it was, in fact, it's where Hannah Arendt talked about the banality of evil. It was the banality of Adolf Eichmann. Here was this man who personified, because Hitler was dead, Himmler was dead, Kaltenbrunner was dead. He alone, at that point, personified the evils of Nazism. And yet he was such an, a forgettable individual I mean, if it weren't for the fact that he was the architect of this monstrosity, he would have been eminently uninteresting. But his trial was this moment for the retelling in a much fuller fashion of the story of the Holocaust. Given Globke's own role in the Holocaust, Tim Naftali says there was fear in the West German government about what Eichmann might say about Globke. There was so much worry about whether Eichmann might implicate Globke in the Nazis' crimes that... The West Germans were also very keen to get a hold of a 600-page autobiography or memoir that Eichmann had written at some point before he was captured. And the, the West Germans were very concerned about what references to Globke in particular there might be in this memoir. The Americans came to the aid of their ally. The CIA had learned that Life magazine had bought the rights to this memoir. The CIA got a chance to look at this manuscript, and they found only one reference to Globka. And the CIA, for the West German government, was able to get Life magazine to remove that reference to Globka from an article that Life ultimately published. They'd censored a serialization of Eichmann's memoirs in an American magazine to remove all reference to Globke. According to the CIA's own records, it wasn't a damning reference to Globke. It was an indirect one. But the West Germans did not want any reference to Globke to come out in anything written by Eichmann. And why did the 
CIA go along with this? So far as to censor mention of Globker in an American magazine. The CIA traditionally doesn't act without the approval of the White House. The U.S. government shouldn't do this. Make clear that this is, this is not something the U.S. government should do. But in this case, the U.S. government did. Given what Globke did for the Nazi regime, and given that he was at quite a similar level of the Nazi hierarchy to Eichmann, do you think there's a case that Globke should have been in the dock? What I know is that the, that the U.S. intelligence received uncorroborated information about Globke's activities in Greece during the war and his possible involvement in the deportation of the Jews of Salonika. But this was uncorroborated information. And in fact, there was some suggestion that perhaps Eichmann would provide information about that. Certainly, if Globka were responsible for the deportation of any Jews, he should have been tried. At the trial, Eichmann scarcely mentioned Globka. But what Naftali didn't have was the German side of the story. Given the fear that the West German government had, it doesn't take a stretch of the imagination to assume that they were much happier with Eichmann disappeared, if you were, living under an alias in Buenos Aires. But we need to see the, the German records to know this for sure. That part has now been unearthed from the archives at the BND, the German Foreign Intelligence Service. In a moment, we'll meet the woman who uncovered the files, but to enjoy more remarkable stories every day, including my articles on the Hans Globke story, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times today and get one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, Gabby. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I hear you good. I got in touch with Gabby Weber, a German investigative journalist. She's speaking from Buenos Aires, where she's been based for 36 years. I think your English is better than my German, and I no, live in no, Germany, no, no, no. and it's my second language, so... No, no, no. you are a um, polite person. <laughs> Gabby discovered one of the reasons why Eichmann never named Globke in the dock. You, Adolf, son of Adolf Karl Eichmann, 
You are represented in this case by Dr. Robert Servatius and Mr. De the man appointed to be Eichmann's lawyer at his trial was Robert Servatius, who had been a West German intelligence asset for years, and so was effectively on Globke's payroll. Eichmann was totally convinced of naming Globke, Globke and others, and he told this to his lawyer that he is willing to collaborate with prosecutors of other countries. But Servatius, Eichmann's lawyer, with his links to German intelligence, made sure of virtually every word that came out of Eichmann's mouth. You can see in, in the records, Eichmann wanted to mention Globke from the first moment on, but Servatius convinced him not to do so. Weeks into the trial, Servatius, the lawyer, revealed how close Eichmann had come to devastating Globke's reputation in front of the world's television cameras. Eichmann was handed a Nazi-era document. He promised not to introduce it in the process, but the lawyer showed it to his client. It proved Globke and his allies had taken part in drafting a wartime law that allowed the Third Reich to strip Jews of their property. Here are some of Eichmann's private comments on this document from a file that Gabby discovered. They were like the spiders in their webs. They wove the mesh ever tighter and tighter. Then the Gestapo had to get to work according to their plans. How can I be put on trial when one of the people who were pulling the strings back then, who created the legal support structure for stripping the Jews of their rights, is now the state secretary in the West German government? The files Gavi has discovered also show that Eichmann wanted to bring Globke to the fore in his final speech to the court. But he didn't. Eichmann was found guilty on every count and sentenced to death by hanging. He was executed on the 1st of June, 1962, and took his secrets with him. Both Hans Globke and Konrad Adenauer retired in 1963, after 14 years at the summit of German politics. Globke died 10 years later, in 1973. He'd wanted to spend his final years in Switzerland, but was turned away by the Swiss government on account of his tarnished history. The legacy of this largely forgotten but astonishingly powerful man is only now being systematically taken apart by historians such as Gunnar Tarka and Nadine Freund, who we heard from in part one. Their landmark report the first deep dive into Globke and the Adenauer Chancellery's links with the Third Reich will be published in the autumn. For years, Germany, despite carrying such a weighty albatross of guilt around its neck, did not fully confront its Nazi past. But since the 1970s, this has changed. Nowadays, it's impossible to live in Germany for any length of time without hearing the word Vergangenheitsaufarbeitung, the working over of the past. I first went to Germany in 1982 as a Fulbright Fellow, expecting that I would stay for a year. Susan Neiman is a moral philosopher, originally from Atlanta, Georgia. She moved to Germany in 1982. She's also Jewish. 
What led me to stay in Berlin at that point in time was really the fascination with what Germans call Vergangenheitsaufarbeitung or working through the past. But I decided to leave Berlin at the end of 1988 because I didn't feel it was a place to live and raise a family. As a foreigner, much less as a Jew, I did not feel the Nazi past had been sufficiently faced, confronted, atoned for. Twelve years later, I came back and I even became a German citizen. I have dual citizenship. I'm an American German citizen. You've been particularly critical of the way West Germany failed to confront the legacy of Nazism in the years after the Second World War. After I began to read a lot of things written briefly after, you know, in the first couple of decades after the war, the way in which the vast majority of citizens of the Federal Republic considered themselves to be the worst victims of the war, I was shocked, and most non-Germans I know are also shocked. I began to ask my friends and acquaintances, hey, nobody was ashamed to tell me that their father was a Nazi, but no one told me my father was a Nazi and he thought they were the worst victims of the war. I got several answers to that question. One was, yeah, I guess that was shameful. There was something shameful about admitting that. But other people told me it was so obvious no one ever bothered to mention it. After all, we'd lost the war, we'd lost a quarter of our territory, seven million citizens, our cities were in ruins and our people were hungry. And the felt sense that the suffering that counted after the war was German suffering was very, very strong in the Federal Republic. This was the Republic through which Hans Globke had risen up. It reminds me of what Manfred Lahnstein told me in part one of this podcast. Germany was not a philosophical seminar. People had very immediate needs to meet. If Germany wasn't a philosophical seminar after the Second World War, what does that mean for our protagonist? Hans Globke died in 1973. His rise to become effectively second in command of modern Germany happened during the 50s and 60s. It's hard to get into the mindset of those around during this era. And maybe pointing out the glaring hypocrisies oversimplifies this story. After all, that isn't how life works. This is one of the reasons why I didn't actually appreciate Richard von Weizsäcker's famous speech in 1985. The most Deutschen hatten geglaubt, für die gute Sache des eigenen Landes zu kämpfen und auch zu leiden. Und nun sollte sich herausstellen, in 1985, on the 8th of May, 40 years after the end of the Second World War, the German president, Richard von Weizsäcker, spoke to the nation. Weizsäcker made a speech which can really be marked as a turning point in the history of the Federal Republic's understanding of the Nazi past. Der Blick zurück in einen dunklen Abgrund der Vergangenheit und nach vorn in eine ungewisse, dunkle Zukunft. And what was interesting is I was in Berlin at the time. My German was good enough to understand the words, but I really didn't understand the context yet. 
because the tenor of Weizsäcker's speech was, yes, we suffered. I know we suffered. I know how badly you suffered. And he sort of goes on and on about that. Und dennoch wurde von Tag zu Tag klarer, was es heute für alle gemeinsam zu sagen gilt. And then says, but other people suffered more and their suffering was caused by us because before we were victims, we were perpetrators. And therefore, we should consider May 8th to be a day of liberation. Der 8. Mai war ein Tag der Befreiung. Er hat uns alle befreit von dem menschenverachtenden System der nationalsozialistischen Gewaltherrschaft. Now, to, for, for people outside Germany to say other people suffered more and their suffering was our fault seems like saying the earth is round or water is wet or something. It just seems so very obvious. And I didn't appreciate at the time how very deep this sense of self-victimization was in the Federal Republic. Aber wir dürfen nicht im Ende des Krieges die Ursache für Flucht, Vertreibung und Unfreiheit sehen. And we are still learning what all this means. Just how long and dark a shadow the Third Reich cast over the childhood of the liberal democracy that took its place. And maybe this is what the story of Hans Klopke ultimately tells us. The Hans Globke story reminds us that though Machiavelli has been dead for centuries, the kind of political calculations that he brilliantly summarized remain part of the human condition. I'm sorry to say this, but it shows up that you can commit huge crimes and nobody will punish you if you always stay with power. It's horrible. An untold number of former Nazis were able to prosper and direct the government of West Germany with extremely weak forms of excuses about their behavior during the Nazi period. It's an important reminder of the, the tension sometimes between morality and state interest. You could draw dark lessons or maybe bright lessons as far as the dark side is concerned, I think one thing that you learn certainly is that as a civil servant in 20th century Germany, you could get away with almost anything, provided that you were loyal to whoever was in charge. The Globke story also points to the stability a young democracy can have almost independently on who the civil servants are. The essential question for me is why was it worth it? Why was he worth it? Why, why Globka? Was there not another intelligent bureaucrat in post-war Germany that could have fulfilled the same functions for Adenauer? I'm back at the chancellery. I've been told the portrait of Globka that hangs inside now has a plaque next to it recognizing his part in the crimes of the Nazi regime. Oddly, Despite everything we've heard in this podcast, I think this is a story with a happy ending. At the end of the Second World War, Germany was a physically and psychologically broken country, with eight and a half million members of the Nazi party, 
12 million refugees and millions more battle-hardened men who had watched everything they fought for burn in the fires of defeat. It was a recipe for chaos, possibly even civil war. And yet, within a few years, these ruins were refashioned into one of the solid pillars of the Western world. The price Germany paid was high. It took decades for the nation to seriously confront what it had done. Even now, parts of the truth remain concealed. The story of Hans Globke, the spider in the web, is an uncomfortable reminder of how much of this legacy remains to be dealt with. But today, for all its flaws, Germany is now a country with a unique habit of questioning itself. Since I came to Berlin as the Times correspondent, it's something that has for me been the defining quality of this country. A country that today, I don't think Hans Globke would recognize. You've been listening to The Spider in the Web, The Hans Globke Story, a two-part podcast from the stories of our times, with me, Oliver Moody, The Times Berlin correspondent. The podcast is brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. My guests today were the historians Gunnar Taka, Klaus Dietmar Henke, and Tim Naftali, the journalist Gabi Weber, the moral philosopher Susan Neiman, and the retired politician Manfred Lahnstein. Special thanks to my researcher in the Times Berlin Bureau, Sabina Schu. This episode was produced by Will Rowe and Edward Drummond. The executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Carla Patella. Also, particular thanks to the historians who've helped me to understand the story of Hans Klopke but didn't appear in this podcast. Annette Vorwinkel, Angela Schwarz, Heiner Stahl, Eric Lomach, the late Jürgen Bevers, and Holger Nering. Thanks also to Arno Semsrott, the Konrad Adenauer Foundation, and the Bundespresseamt. The voiced parts were done by Nathan Jackson and Johannes Weiland. If you have thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. Thank you.